Father, we thank you that you um, have a history of speaking mighty words, that all of creation is the expression of your word, spoken into nothing and creating something, ex nihilo. And you spoke into the barrenness of Sarah's womb and brought forth a nation. And uh, you are speaking into the, the, the emptiness, the void, the death, even the rebellion of our own hearts, and you're transforming us. And you do it through your written word, the, the, the Holy Scriptures. And we pray that that word would be um, communicated this morning and that you would help us to live more in light of your working uh, in the world, not against it, but with the grain of your powerful work in history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our culture um, tends to be fairly suspicious of Christianity, if not outright hostile towards it. And one of the big problems, one of the big beefs that the culture has with uh, Christianity is um, this idea that there's an assumption that Christianity um, has a bad view of power. That Christians worship this God who is all-powerful, and what he's interested in doing is giving us rules and laws to live by. And to the extent that his power advances in my life, I lose power. My life is stifled. My life is reduced. Now, that understanding of Christianity is pretty common. It's actually a major reduction of how the Bible views both God and his power in the world. And what we've seen just in the book of Genesis related to how God exercises his power is far more beautiful than that. It's, 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 it's incredibly beautiful. And that's what we're going to consider today. You see the, the title of the sermon is Blessed Power. We're going to be looking at what blessed power looks like. But what's power? What, what exactly is it? Andy Crouch says power is the ability to make something of the world. And he says, if you think of it that way, if power is the ability to kind of make something of the world, then it's not something that just humans have. It's not something that just powerful people have. It's something that all of creation has and exercises to some extent. Beavers build dams. They're making something of the world. Cows, even, even as they express the grass that they're eating, they're empowering the world. They're changing it by enriching the soil. Right? There's, there, there, there's this whole symphony of power at work in creation as all of creation works to move the world along. And we see the kind of power that God has right there at the beginning, the very beginning, the first chapter of Genesis. Remember what God says as he's creating the world? He says to the things that he makes, let there be, let there be light. Right? Let there be. And Andy Crouch says that, that's in the Joseph tense. It's not a tense that we're very familiar with. It's the Joseph tense. It's not a direct imperative. It's not like come into existence, light, you be. It's let there be. He says that, that Joseph tense is simultaneously more powerful and less controlling than a direct imperative. And that, and, and, and that is the refrain. That refrain, let there be, is a refrain of, of generous power 
and even generating power. It creates, it gives more power to the thing made to go and do what God created it to do. God is saying, be who you are. Flourish is what he's saying. He says, let there be. Now, following the fall, we see immediately the abuse of power. Right off the bat, the next generation from Adam and Eve, Cain. Remember what Cain does? It's the ultimate power grab. He takes his brother Abel, and what does he do? He exercises his power in order to take all power away from Abel by murdering him. Abel has no power left at that point. Cain abuses his power to take away power through murder. A son of Cain, Lamech, we also see him abusing power. He takes marriage, which was to be an institution of self-giving, where husband and wife give of themselves to one another. And he begins to take not just one wife, multiple wives. He's not giving himself to a spouse. He's taking multiple wives. And then he, he beats his chest. Remember in, in, in Genesis chapter, seven, um, chapter 4, he says, when a, when a little boy, a teenage boy is likely what it was, offends Lamech. And he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is 77-fold, right? Revenge, power, I'm going to take until my, my, my vengeance is satisfied. A good example of bad power is slavery, the institution of slavery. Listen to what Andy Crouch says about it. In enslavement, one human being asserts unlimited power over another. It's an assertion that requires not just the inflation of the slave owner to unholy godlike levels, but the eradication of the slave's power. In this corrupted version of absolute power, power is a finite resource jealously hoarded. In a corrupted power relationship, all power must accrue to the powerful total opposite of God's power as seen at creation where he says, let there be. The slave owner in, a, in, a, in the institution of slavery takes all power away from the other. And the Bible condemns this kind of, these kinds of power grabs, the, these kinds of abuses of power. The Bible condemns it. And we get a picture of that here in this blessing of Jacob. Last week, we, we considered the power of blessing as Jacob... Uh, blessed his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And this week, we're going to look at what blessed power looks like. What's the kind of power that God exercises in the world? That's what we're going to look at. So there's two points this morning. Cursed power. It's the first point. Cursed power. And the second point is blessed power. Blessed power. Now, it's very important that we see, again, just like last week, that what this blessing is not just like a doting grand, uh, father and grandfather giving blessing to his sons. It's more than that. Jacob is, is passing down the word of God to these sons and grandsons last week. And you see it again. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Right? He's, he's saying, this is what, I'm, I'm about to die. We, that's what's been said. He knows he's on his deathbed, and he, he rises himself. I'm telling you what's going to happen in the future. This is the word of God. It's prophetic. It's speaking of what's going to happen years from, from this point. 
And then he says, assemble, verse 2, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. That language of assembling and, and listening, it's shema, it's the, the Hebrew word uh, to hear. It, it, it connotes divine communication being communicated to these, to these sons of Jacob. And God begins, right, so, so think about the book of Genesis. It begins with God blessing creation, what he made, and it ends with God blessing the nation that he also created in the book of Genesis, ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of the emptiness of Sarah's womb, God raises up this people. The nation is right here, Israel and his sons. This is the nation that God is going to bring about the new creation. And so he's blessing this nation. He's speaking to them. And these words that God speaks here, they don't just govern like subsequent generations. They are governing this very second. The word that God is speaking to his sons govern this very moment. Now, we're not going to look at every son because it would just be, it'd be too long. You guys probably want to get home before dinner. So we're going to um, focus just on Reuben, Simeon, and Levi as we consider cursed power. And then we're going to look at Judah as we consider blessed power. So first, cursed power. And first, let's look at Reuben. Verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, Jacob says. My might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Man, the optics are good on Reuben. He's the firstborn. He's strong. He's, he, he's honorable. He's dignified. He's got potential just coming out the ears. But look, verse 4. Unstable as water. Have you ever, is water very stable? You're going to build a house on water? You're going to, can you even hold water? It's not stable at all. You shall not have preeminence. Now, you may think, well, I, I thought this was Jacob's blessings. This doesn't sound like a blessing. You shall not have preeminence? It sounds kind of harsh. It's actually an anti-blessing, isn't it? It's an anti-blessing. And we're going to see the same with Simeon and Levi. It's not, it's not good for them individually. L listen to what Bruce Waltke says. These anti-blessings that we see towards some of these sons... They're in the best interest of the nation of Israel as a whole because they curb the baser elements of the various tribes. We're going to see it, sexual infidelity and, and sin, as well as violence, gratuitous violence. So they, they curb by omitting them from receiving certain blessings, Simeon, Levi, and Reuben. It's actually a blessing to the nation as a whole. But, but here's the question, what did Reuben do? Why, so, why such harsh words to Reuben? Look at verse 4 again. You went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, Jacob says. Do you remember this? Genesis chapter 35, Rachel dies. Do you remember? Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, dies. And following that, Reuben goes to sleep with Bilhah, Rachel's servant. And his motivation, it's, it's less motivated by lust, actually, and more but motivated uh, politically. He is trying to defile Bilhah, Rachel, Jacob's favorite 
wife's servant, so as to keep Leah in the race for favorite wife. Okay? That's, he's defiling Bilhah by doing this. So he's doing that. And again, polygamy is a, a total train wreck in, in the scriptures. Simply because the Bible describes it, it's not endorsing it at all. It's showing that it's, it's, it's a train wreck. But not only is he defiling Bilhah to sort of prop up Leah's campaign for best wife of Jacob, Reuben is also making a, a power grab so as to say, I'm the man of this tribe. I'm the man now. And guess what? He's after preeminence. He wants power. And, and that's the very thing he loses. He loses the very thing he was after, preeminence. Because from, this, from chapter 35 onward, do you remember Reuben? He keeps talking. He keeps trying to lead his brothers and trying to lead his family. And they don't ever listen. Remember when they were thinking about what to do with Joseph? Reuben said, we should not do anything. Let's not harm him. We don't want his blood on our hands. And did the brothers listen? No. Psh. We don't care what you have to say, Reuben. And then when the brothers return and they're, they're in this dilemma, what do we do? We can't lose Benjamin. We can't send him back. The man wants Benjamin. What do we do? And Reuben says, send me. And if Benjamin dies, I'll kill my two sons. That's what he says. And Jacob just ignores him. Dumb idea, Reuben. Dumb idea. Reuben has leadership aspirations, but he has no ability to lead. He wants preeminence and power, but he lacks the wisdom required of it. He wants power without the responsibility that it requires. And here's the thing. That, that sin of Reuben doesn't just affect Reuben. It, re, it affects subsequent generations. He, is, he forfeits leadership for subsequent generations. There is no preeminence. Now, we live in an individualistic age, don't we? We think, you know, what I do behind closed doors, kind of my business, doesn't affect other people. Reuben did this behind closed doors, and it's affecting, it, it affects for thousands of years his descendants. Like, it, it carries repercussions for generations. And get this, the three main offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, not one prophet, priest, and king or even judge, in, in, the, in the Old Testament comes from the line of Reuben. Not one. Now you may be saying, well, but I, you know, I've never slept with the family concubine. But have you violated another person in order to gain power? Think about, think about gossip. Think about gossip. What, what is gossip? I've heard a, a definition I like of gossip. Is gossip is saying behind someone's back, what you would not say to their face. And, and by the way, flattery is saying to someone's face what you wouldn't say behind their back. Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you wouldn't say to their face. Gossip is a power grab. It's actually much like Reuben's sin, a sexual sin in lust. Um, and and l- listen to what Scott Sauls, a pastor, says about gossip. He likens it to pornography. He says, gossip is pornography of the mouth because it seeks the same thing that a lustful fantasy seeks, a cheap thrill at another person's expense while making zero effort to connect with or commit to that person. It dehumanizes the other person, turning them into a thing to be used. Right? Gossip, 
Gossip is, is a power grab because it's us wanting to be kind of in the know. Gossip wants power. It may not be political power, but social power. And the net effect, long-term, over gossip, there's short-term gain, maybe, maybe. But the net effect is always that your word is just becomes chaff. It becomes worthless. You lose. The gossip loses the very thing that they want. They want their word to be weighty and full of intrigue but it becomes like chaff that the wind just blows away. It becomes weightless and empty. And just like pornography severs marriages, gossip severs community. It's like a fire in a community. It rips it apart. It's dangerous. Well, Reuben grabs at preeminence and he catches air. And his descendants catch hair. And that's the seriousness of this sin. It doesn't ju- it, sin doesn't just affect you individually. It, it comes down upon your children of yours that you will never meet. Subsequent generations. It's a mess. Now let's, look, let's now shift from Reuben to Simeon and Levi. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Now, do you remember Simeon and Levi? Do you remember what they did? Um, they, their sister, Dinah, went to, to mingle uh, with the Canaanites in a Canaanite village, which was kind of not a good idea. She went and, and she mingled and she met the prince of the land and the prince of the land uh, raped her and held her captive. And when word reached their village that this had happened, the brothers decide to, with a scheme actually, um, wipe out, slaughter the village. And they do. They tell the men that they want to forge a covenant with them, a, a partnership, and align, they want to align themselves with them. And they tell them to circumcise themselves. And on the third day, when the men are most unable to defend themselves, they go and they wipe out the village. And they get an anti-blessing. Look at verse 6. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Now, it doesn't say that that actually happened in the passage, and so what likely that refers to, because they they took the livestock for their own, but likely maybe when they returned, they just sort of slaughtered, gratuitously and senselessly slaughtered the oxen and some of the livestock that they took as just a show of, of disrespect. Cursed be their anger, God says, verse, verse 7. For it is fierce in their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So uh, Simeon and Levi, when the land is apportioned to the people, to the nation, they don't get any. They don't have any land holdings. They're scattered, just as predicted. Now, last week we quoted a commentator, Brueggemann, who said something in relation to the Egyptians watching these blessings happen. I'm going to quote that again. Listen to what he says. If there were any Egyptians watching this ceremony, it must have seemed ludicrous. Such sacramental symbolic acts must always appear absurd to the empire. Remember, the empire, the the Egyptian empire is built by sight, It's built uh, in the flesh, in the power of the flesh. Egypt is accustomed to grasping at land and having it quickly. 
But when one waits for the land, as Israel does, there's no way to force the issue. You must just wait. Blessings are for waiting. Laying on of hands is for hoping. The grandsons, and we should add the sons here, cannot receive more than that. Their father and grandfather can't give more than that. And it does not matter if the empire cannot understand it. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi acted like Egyptians when they took in order to gain. When they took, when Reuben took his father's wife, when Simeon and Levi took the lives of a whole village in order to enact vigilante justice. It's a power grab. And in the end, what do they grab? Air. Nothing. Nothing. So that's cursed power. That's cursed power. Now I want us to consider blessed power. You may think, man, that, that's kind of depressing that my sin brings anti-blessings on me and even my sons and my daughters and their sons and daughters and so on and so forth. Christianity is not fatalistic. His, as we sang, we sang it just a moment ago, his mercy is more. Even Levi is the priestly tribe. Levi is going to take up his sword in, in, in protection of the temple to guard and protect. So, so there, is, there is mercy that's extended. And we see it in these brothers. And we see it specifically with Judah. Because here's the thing. Judah is on the same track as Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And I think, I think you could make the case that Judah was even more dangerous than Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Because remember, Judah is the one that sold, he's the one that took up leadership and sold Joseph as a slave. He's the one that rallied the brothers. He's the one that moved into the land of the Canaanites, took a Canaanite wife, raised wicked sons, sons so wicked that God struck them down in death. He was left with a daughter-in-law, Tamar. This is Judah. Left with a daughter-in-law, Tamar, who he dangles along and says, I will give you my, my son to you in marriage so that you're not a widow that's in perpetual poverty for the rest of your life. I will, but he doesn't give his son to her in marriage. And so Tamar takes things into her own hands. She needs children in this day and age. She needs, she needs to build up a people for herself to support her when she gets old. So she disguises as a prostitute. And Judah goes to town and runs into her, doesn't know that it's her, doesn't have payment on hand. So he gives her his signet, his, his driver's license, essentially, his little identifying card, and says, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you your money eventually. You just hold on to this. And he sleeps with her and returns to pay. A servant returns on his behalf to pay, but they can't find her. Months later, it's said that Tamar has done a wicked thing, his daughter-in-law. And you remember what Judah says? Burn her at a stake. Burn her. And so they're carrying her, they're walking her to the, to the fire. And she pulls out a signet, Judah's signet. Says, by the man to whom this belongs. That's, that's how this has happened to me. This immoral thing. And Judah is cut to the heart. Remember his response? She is more righteous than I. It's the conviction of sin. It pierces Judah's heart. And from that point forward, Judah is a changed man. We see Judah using his leadership, using his gifts of power 
to lay down his life. That's what he does. Remember, Reuben said, hey, dad, I'm going to kill my two sons if Benjamin gets taken. I'll kill him. It's like, that, what, what is that going to do? Judah says, I will give my life for Benjamin. And, and, and actually pulls the trigger on that claim when Joseph says, Benjamin is mine. And Judah, before the Egyptian court, before the Egyptian powers, lays down his life for Benjamin and for his father, Jacob. And we should also mention, Benjamin and Jacob, did they deserve it? Jacob was a bad father to, to Judah. He neglected him from all, all that we can tell. Benjamin was probably a spoiled little brother. And there's Judah, the neglected son, pouring himself out. That's, power, that's, that's blessed power. Laying down, you're taking the power that you have and using it for the good of others. Well, let's see what happens. Let's see what's said to Judah. Verse 8, Jacob says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You're going to have a position of power over your enemies. Hand on the throat. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The, nation, the, the, the brothers will praise you. The tribe will praise you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You see on our, we have a lion all over. It's our logo. Um, this is why. This is why. Because we, Jesus is the lion of Judah. The lion cub. He stooped down, verse 9. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, the, the ruling staff, will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the nations. Not just will the brothers, not just will the tribe of Israel bow down to him in worship, but all the nations will owe him their allegiance. Binding, verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What does that mean? That's kind of lost on us, isn't it? Okay, so the choice vine is the most productive, fruitful vine that a, that a, that a uh, person has. Right? It's just exploding with grapes. And if you tie up your donkey to that vine, you know what the donkey's going to do? Gobble those grapes up. But it don't matter because you're, you're, you're wealthy. It's like you're, you're blowing your nose with $100 bills. Like you're, you're just lavish. You, you've, got, you've got wealth upon wealth. And he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is biblical power. It's a power that extends itself outward to serve others. It seeks the flourishing of the other. Now, I mentioned earlier, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, be voting on elders this next week. And characteristics I have seen in each of these men that's up for vote is a willingness and desire to extend their power outward, to not hoard the power themselves. Not, none of them really want to do this, to be honest, I don't think. I mean, if you guys didn't vote them in, I think they'd be somewhat relieved. Oh, 
I don't have to be Judah. I don't have to say my life for his, right? That's what the call is, to lay down your life, lay down your power. It means late nights. It means weekend. It means all kinds of things that most people would probably rather avoid. But see, they understand the office. And so they, they're, they're entering into it with sobriety. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were looking out for themselves. They were trying to gratify their own lust for power, for justice, but Judah gives. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi take. They take a wife. They take a tribe. But Judah gives his life, his whole life, for the undeserving. And here's the thing. This is the kind of power that that is all around us, all around us, in this very room right now. There is power coursing through this building, and it's giving, isn't it? The light, the light bulbs, there's electric, electric power. Like, there's power that would kill any one of us if we touched it. But is it, is it after us? No, it's serving us right now. It's lighting up this room. The AC is keeping us comfortable. The power is being used for our good. Now it can get out of control, and electrical fire, you know, bad things can happen. But that's what's happening. And, and all of it, this is, this is the biblical understanding of power. The sun points to this kind of power, doesn't it? Does the sun shine on you if you're a good person? Does it shine on murderers as well as churchgoers? Does it shine on the wealthy and the poor alike? It shines everywhere. It's just, it's giving its, its light to the world. That's generous power. And we see it with God at creation where he says, let there be. And, and here's the thing. Lest you doubt that this is the kind of power that the scriptures speak of from start to finish. A generous, generating power that gives. Look no further than to the son of Judah, right? A chip off the old block, we might say. Jesus of Nazareth, did he take? Did he see power as a finite resource to hoard? Not at all. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my very life as a ransom. Like you, you can reject Christianity for a lot of reasons, but don't reject it because it has a view of a God as a dictator who just wants to rule your life. That's not the biblical picture of God. The most poignant expression of God, Jesus' glory, he called it. He called it his glory, was his self-giving on a cross. He gave us, on that cross, gave us a mystery into the, into the universe, that the p- power behind everything that is, is a power that gives. It gives like the sun gives. The power flows forth from him. It doesn't take like the slave master. It becomes a slave. It serves. It gives. It's enabling power. And this is how leadership and power work. If, if you're in leadership, which is everyone in this room, if you have a sibling, if you're in first grade and you've got a little boy or girl you know in preschool, you're a leader there. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. Wherever, if you're in the home, moms, dads, all of us have some degree of power and leadership. So what do we do with it? It is important that we tap into the power of Almighty God. Otherwise, your leadership might be unbalanced. You might overreach, forgetting that God, the king, gives you his power, and your power is derivative. It's not ultimate. Or you might be too timid, forgetting that the God who powers this whole 
universe is empowering your life and sustaining you in your leadership. And here's what the Scriptures say. The power of all the universe gets bottled up in a singular message called the gospel. The gospel of Christ. Romans 1, Paul says it, that the gospel is the power of God. The, the, word is, uh, the Greek word is dynamos, which is where we get our word dynamite from. It's explosive. And, and it's the gospel that is bringing about the salvation of mankind. And think, think about it. Think about what the gospel is. It's power being emptied of itself. That's what it is. Well, listen, listen, I'm going to close with this. This is a quote that many, uh, almost all of you have heard. If you've been to our membership class, I, I regularly cite it. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor, uh, speaks, and he's an 18, 19th century pastor. So in the 1800s, imagine a zoo with a caged lion. And this is the, this is the image he's, he's picturing for us. Spurgeon says, see you that lion. See that lion. They've caged him for his preservation. They've shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. And see how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you thankful that you have shown from start to finish what your power is like. It is good, and it is most powerfully depicted in the gospel where Jesus laid down his life to atone for human sin. We thank you for that message. We thank you that that doesn't just depict the kind of power that marks you, but it actually bestows your power to the world. It gives it. It is the power of God for salvation, both to Jew and Gentile. Help us as we come to this table to remember that we are coming to receive Godly power, the power that lays down its life. We are, we, are, we are going to taste what divine power looks like as we come and receive the body and blood of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.